this edition of Create the Village. There was a lot of hope early on in this pandemic that this could be a short-term blip, but it has dragged on. If these students don't come back, that means we're not going to have the ability to manufacture high-end things in the future. Our whole, our whole national productivity will decline quite a bit. My name is Egbert Perry. I'm the CEO and founder of The Integral Group, a real estate company that focuses on creating value in cities and rebuilding the fabric of communities. This is Create the Village, a podcast about the intersection of public policy and community development. Our guest today is Jill Barshay. Jill is a staff writer and editor who writes the weekly Truth Points column about education research and data for the Hettinger Report. That's a highly respected news source that reports on inequality and innovation in education. Previously, Jill was the New York bureau chief for Marketplace. And you know that as a national business show on public radio stations. She has also written extensively for Congressional Quarterly, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The Financial Times, and appeared on CNN and ABC News. In other words, she knows her stuff, she knows what she's doing, and she's often sought out. She's a graduate of Brown University and holds a master's degree from the London School of Economics and Columbia University's Graduate School of Journalism. She was a 2016-17 Spencer Fellow in Education Journalism. In 2019, she received the American Educational Research Association's Award for Excellence in Media Reporting on Education Research. Jill has not only reported on education, but she was also in the classroom teaching algebra to ninth graders. Jill, thank you so much for joining us. If you will, in your own words, could you just sort of tell us something more about yourself that I didn't cover in that introduction, which I'm sure didn't do enough justice to your career? That was a very generous introduction, and thank you for reading that aloud and for having me on your show. Um, I would say one thing that wasn't part of that is that earlier in my career, I used to live in Russia and later in Hong Kong, and... I was thinking today on reflecting on that time and that it's best for me not to work in foreign countries anymore because it seems that several years later, the countries that I've lived in, they become more autocratic and start suppressing freedoms more. Wow. And now, are you saying something about here as well? I will leave that I alone. I hope not. <laughs> well, I hope, I hope that epic, epic won't won't come to pass. Yet. That's right. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. So, Jill, understandably, for the last several months, um, much of what you're reporting has been on public education is in the context of the worldwide pandemic. And obviously, the worldwide pandemic makes, brings up everything for everybody. It's all consuming. And so all of that makes sense. But you reported, for instance, in this time of remote learning, the number of hours children receive educational instruction varies depending on where they live. We kind of sort of know that, but much to the surprise of many, you concluded that poverty was not a differentiator 
when looking at the amount of time, instructional time, a child receives. That really was a surprise. And you did learn, however, that poverty was a determining factor in other areas, just not in that area. So let me ask you, were you surprised to learn that poverty did not drive instructional time, was not a direct relation to that? And what other areas where poverty did in fact matter? So this was a really interesting study by the American Institutes for Research based in Washington, D.C., which does really high-quality studies. And they surveyed school districts all around the country, and they found that instructional time was wildly different. Some kids got more than three hours a day in elementary school, and others got less than an hour. And it was... Poverty explains some of it. So it's fair to say that wealthier kids tended to get a few more hours than poor kids. But I think poverty explained less than half of the difference. What was really different between the rich kids and the poor kids was how they were being taught. So for example, um, low-income districts, they said they were mostly spending time reviewing old material. They weren't bothering to teach the kids new stuff. And in districts with wealthier children, they were moving ahead, teaching them new things like fractions or more complicated um, writing assignments. The second thing that was really different between poor kids and rich kids, and I, I'm saying those terms loosely, I mean low districts with low-income students and districts with more affluent students, was that um, the high-income students had screens, they had iPads, they had tablets, they had computers, and the teachers could deliver a lot of live remote instruction. So um, behind the scenes, we're having a Zoom call right now. This is how kids were learning, and they could talk to their teachers directly over Zoom. Whereas low-income kids, they didn't have the tech access, so they weren't having any video live instruction time. And instead, they were getting paper packets, and the families had to pick them up from the school, or sometimes they would be delivered. So it wasn't just a matter of the hours. It was the, the quality of instruction itself. Huh. So I, as you were talking, I was thinking of a question, what's the difference between low-income schools and higher-income schools during the pandemic? And that's really what you're speaking to. Right, So it's about resources and how the students are dealt with in the classroom. So you spent a lot of time reporting on, and for that matter, analyzing educational disparities, particularly around race and income. I wonder if you have developed an opinion based on that reporting about the greatest barriers to educational attainment for children from mod modest income backgrounds. And what were the barriers before COVID and how have the barriers changed since the pandemic? Well, you're asking the biggest question in education. What are, what are the barriers? Why is it that low-income students aren't achieving as much as high-income students? And there are so many answers to that question. There are things happening at home. There are um, trauma and stress is so much more frequent in low-income homes, and that makes it so much harder to learn. There's a lack of basic health care. There's a lack of, there's food insecurity, and all these things make it so much harder to learn, and that was happening before COVID. 
And then you have on the school side is that low-income schools tend to have far fewer resources. They're spending less money in their schools. They can't pay for the best teachers. The, even if they have the funds, which is true in some, some low-income districts like New York City, where I live, they, they can afford to pay um, the teachers more. But because of the way the, the rules work, the teachers tend to have more longevity and there are more veteran teachers at the high income schools. And so the low income students aren't getting to take advantage of the best teachers that we have all, all the time. And so then the second part of your question was how things got worse over COVID. And I would say the biggest problem for so many low income children is they haven't had a quiet place to work. They don't have their own computer to learn on and they don't have a good internet connection. So it's impossible for them to learn. So given an already disparate situation, they, they couldn't keep learning during this period. It's been terrible. So we know that the situation is bad in the early grades, made worse by COVID, or let's say in high school, made worse by COVID, mainly drawn along racial and class lines, because that translates into resources and access to resources necessary to do that. Let's set COVID aside for a moment and let's talk about education in general and specifically in this case now, higher education. Uh, you recently reported on inequalities in the U.S. through the lens of how people of different races and ethnicities are sorted into different colleges. I read that, found it quite interesting. Um, so why don't you just tell the listeners about how this work plays into the recent study conducted in Virginia, which also was pretty intriguing to, to read. Yeah, this was one of the most interesting studies I came across earlier this year. It was conducted by the Urban Institute and they were able to get data for all the college students in the state of Virginia. And first of all, it was so interesting that I think it was more than 50% of all the black students in Virginia ended up at one of four colleges. And surprise, surprise, it, it's not the most prestigious colleges in the state. It's not Virginia Tech. It's not UVA. It's Old Dominion and um, Virginia Commonwealth and, and a couple others that are much less selective. And then they looked at, even within each institution, how black students and white students have dramatically different graduation rates. Sometimes white students have 30% higher graduation rate than black students. So for example, one college um, in Roanoke, Virginia, the white students were 50% of the white students were graduating on time, whereas only 18% of the black students were. That's a 30 percentage point difference. But what was really interesting is it was hard to explain why this was happening. The, the researchers could look at the students' high school grades and their SAT scores and family income. And even after they adjusted, even after they compared a black student and a white student who had the same family income and the same high school preparation, the white students were still graduating at higher levels. So, for example, in that Roanoke College I was telling you about, 
instead of a 30 percentage point difference, it became a 15 percentage point difference. So that's the difference, say, of whites, 50% of white students graduating on time and, say, 35% of black students graduating on time. And so why? why? Why, if the students have the same smarts and the same income, why is there such a big gap? And it's a big mystery. Some people will say it, maybe it's institutional racism, other people are thinking, well, maybe it's a wealth gap. Maybe white students have more wealth to um, lean upon. Like a, a, It becomes a security net when times are tough at home. Um, there's a college in California that was able to close its racial graduation gap. Um, and it just changed the rules at the school. It did things like it stopped banning the ability for students to turn in late papers or make up missed exams. And after it uh, changed a bunch of rules, there was no difference between the white and black graduation gap. Hmm. So is this, are you um, looking into a lens of what some, something you're going to do a little more research or digging into? Because as you were talking about it, I could hear the intrigue in your voice and the what is really going on here kind of question. Or do you think it's one of those that we just have to leave and let it ride, but understand that it's more complicated. Well, I'm a journalist, and I rely <laughs> on what other researcher, researchers. Right? Yeah, so if researchers can dig into that more, I would love to write about it more. It's hard to quantify institutional racism. That sure. I've never seen anyone sure. do that. <laughs> okay. Um, so on, again, on the college level, in a recent column, you, you reported that black college enrollment was down sharply during the summer of 2020. So obviously, we're back in a COVID discussion. We didn't leave it for long. It's hard to stay away from COVID. It seems to be here with us no matter what these days. But in that column, you wrote that some students, specifically higher income students, were more inclined to hit the books during the COVID summer. And I'm not sure if you're a regular viewer of 60 Minutes, we all know what 60 Minutes is, but they did a story this past November where they examined how the largest school districts in the country are experiencing an unprecedented drop in enrollment due to COVID. And in fact, according to 60 Minutes, the school districts they spoke with report that the largest decrease in enrollment was in pre-K and kindergarten. And if you saw their story, then you know that the children experiencing the greatest impact were low-income and children of color. So you found that there was a decline in black college enrollment. 60 Minutes is reporting that the largest decrease in enrollment is in pre-K and kindergarten. So I want to go back just a little bit to share a story and get your reaction to this. In May, around May 2020, just as the pandemic, pandemic was really taken off and schools had sent children home for the year, School districts were trying to figure out what to do for this current academic year. And I interviewed Dr. Harris Cooper. Uh, he's an accomplished researcher, <laughs> not reporter, but researcher. Uh, and in fact, he's the Hugo Bloomquist Distinguished Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. Very respected and accomplished academic. And during the interview, he was providing a realistic and even prophetic prognosis of the national education system. And I asked him, when looking through an educational lens, 
who are the losers and who are the winners during this COVID pandemic? And without missing a beat, he responded, the winners are the people who have already won. So when I look at some of your work and when you consider what 60 Minutes found, I'm reminded of what Dr. Cooper said. So my question to you is this, what are we in the middle of right now? You're reporting on it, you're seeing works from a lot of different places. Are we living through a temporary bubble where we see a reduction in attendance, a dip in performance of low-income students, or will this period live with us for decades? And what will be the lasting impact, cost, and maybe a loss of a generation of students? What are you hearing? There was a lot of hope early on in this pandemic that this could be a short-term blip, but it has dragged on. I think we're nine months into it now. It's going to be more than a year when this is all over before people are back into school again. I think we're looking at an 18-month gap when all is said and done. And that's going to be hard to recover, especially for critical years in brain development for young kids, for adolescents. And there's a lot of research that if you don't start college on time, it's hard to get back onto that path again. I, I'm writing a story right now about how there are gigantic double-digit declines in vocational training at community colleges. This is to be sort of master welders and lathe operators and precision production. There, I think it was an 18% decline in these trades and get a sort of associate degrees in applied science. If these students don't come back, that means we're not going to have the ability to manufacture high-end things in the future. Our whole, our whole national productivity will decline quite a bit. I mean, there, there are so many implications to this. I, that's a, it's a big question, and I'd like to ask me more. I want to yeah, well, help uh, flesh it, this answer out a bit more. You know, as you were talking, of course, it had me going down the, so what are the implications? How many ways will this manifest itself in the future? Maybe five years 10 years from now, are we creating a COVID generation? Right. And so that, I mean, so the implications are if we can't get these kids back on track and graduating from high school, then we all know what the societal ills are. Then we'll have much more to spend in social welfare in the future because they won't be able to get good jobs. We'll have um, more problems with drug addiction, more healthcare problems. So you're really... If we think we're an unequal society today, we're just going to become a lot more unequal as a result of this pandemic, right? Because the, the ends are being moved further apart. So the, the ones with choices and options and resources are able to widen the gap with those that do not have quite the resources necessary because they're going in the other direction as well. So they're both moving further apart. And I, I don't want to sound too histrionic. We've had major cataclysms in the past where kids were not in school. I mean, you could think about London during the Blitz and World War II. You can think about the earlier Spanish flu of 1918. There, were, there have been times before when kids have been out of school and the consequences didn't seem so terrible. 
And I think it's because we had a different economy then where education wasn't quite as important. You could still get a good middle-class job afterwards. But now we're in a knowledge economy and disruptions to education have higher stakes. Well, and you just even said that even on the good middle-class jobs, vocational schools are seeing <laughs> declines there as well. So that doesn't... You need training. These are computerized machines. This is These are running the robotic arms and the automated assembly lines. Yes. You, you need people with in training to do this. So, so just so we do not depress the audience completely, <laughs> even though we should all be concerned... Who are the winners? Is there even such a thing? Or do you agree with Dr. Cooper? Well, who are the winners? I don't know that there... Okay, the winners right now, if you're talking about people who've benefited from the pandemic, are some ed tech companies and colleges that deliver online instruction, right? So um, Southern New Hampshire University, Western Governors University, all the for-profits, they are winning now. Their, their enrollments are going up. They are collecting more tuition dollars. That's a clear win. When you think, and then there are ed tech companies that are selling things to school. Apple's a winner. You know, Amazon's a winner. <laughs> They're winners right now. But when you think of on the student level, I don't think anyone's a winner per se. I think some people are losing less. So a very privileged child who's still in in-person school, say a private school, they're losing much, much less. But I don't know that even he or she is a winner. I get it. And, and that's an interesting point. I, I was reminded... Uh, you may or may not know, but I was on the board of Fannie Mae for 10 years and was put on the board as one of those 10 directors picked to help reform Fannie and ultimately an integral part of the housing finance system. And we were still seeing, just on the early stages of recovery, a lot of investment into the U.S. And I was talking to our chief economist, and I said, Doug, I'm, I'm struggling here. We're in bad shape. But the numbers in terms of the flow of foreign direct investment into the U.S. is still staggering. And in fact, I would have expected a cooling off. And he looked at me, and it seemed so obvious when he said it, because it was so simple. He said, just remember these three words. We suck less. <laughs> okay, so so it's not, and that's like the, you know, you don't have to outrun the lion, you just out, have to outrun the slowest person because you'll be safe. Well, that's what he is really saying, we suck less, and that's your point. You said everybody is losing, some will just lose um, less than others. Your, your anecdote um, reminded me of something I should have said at the beginning of our conversation. You said, is there anything in your bio that you'd like to tell me that isn't in there. Uh -huh. And I forgot to say that in 1995 and 1996, uh -huh. I covered mortgage-backed securities oh, at Dow wow. Jones Newswires, oh. and I, I covered Fannie Mae's every day and talked to traders about where the Ginnies and the Fannies and the Freddies were, and it was a nightmare in my reporting <laughs> life. <laughs> well, good. All right, so... No, this, is, this has been very, very nice. This is very... Tell me, is there anything you'd want to leave the listeners with? 
There are some smart people trying to come up with ways to help kids catch up. And there's a lot of serious work and there might be some political will to do something. There's a lot of talk right now about giving um, low-income students individual one-on-one tutoring. Maryland has already allocated $100 million toward this, and maybe other states will too. <laughs> there are, there's a lot of investment in thinking about what are the best remediation programs to help kids catch up in reading and in math. And smart brains are trying to do something. And I'm hopeful that some of these solutions will see the light of day. No, that, that's good. And, and I would ask you then, is that, does that give you a sense of what you think the charge or part of the charge of the U.S. Department of Education will have to be or should be um, in the future? Because we're now seeing the connection between education and economic development and countries, economic health, etc. What do you think the U.S. Department of Education should be doing? Well, we have a federal system in this country, and the Department of Education has almost zero influence in what happens in schools in our 50 states. It's really local state and local control. And unless we change the way our whole education system is structured, there isn't much that the U.S. Department of Education can do. What, what U.S. Congress can do is allocate a lot of money to give to the states and localities so that they can, they can um, come up with some of these um, programs to, to help these kids. But um, one of the things that people don't realize, the U.S. Department of Education is primarily involved in college and university and higher ed. There's very little that they do in K-12 education. And it should stay that way, I imagine, right? Well, you'll, I, you'll we can always have thought. a great revolution in education. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jill, thank you very much for this. I really do appreciate your time, your insights, your energy around this topic. And I'll continue to read your work because it absolutely addresses or hits on so many of the points, especially throughout this COVID period, as we're trying to understand what's out there and what's happening. So. Thank you for your contribution and thank you for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you for thinking of me and having me on your program. I appreciate it. Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group. Copyright The Integral Group.